Hi, I'm Melanie Tate and this is Now Hear This. If you're tuning in for the first time, Now Hear This is when we ask you, our listener, to tell your true story in front of an audience without any notes. It's a pretty scary thing to do, but month after month after month, brave people keep getting up and doing it. Today, three stories that are going to take us from the world of celebrity to an Indigenous community on a remote island to a very special mulberry tree in a family backyard. The first story is from Sophie Townsend. When I was a kid, I desperately, desperately wanted to be famous. Um, I wasn't a particularly interesting or attractive child. I uh, had big Coke bottle glasses and I was just a little bit chubby. Not, not chubby enough to play the fat kid in TV commercials, but just chubby enough to ensure that there was never a line of modelling agents outside my door. <laughs> what happened to me, though, was that I discovered second-degree fame because I am the niece of Simon Townsend. <laughs> Simon Townsend in the... <laughs> yeah, pretty good. <laughs> Simon Townsend, for those of you who don't know, like anyone under the age of 30... Um, <laughs> was the king of children's television in the 80s. Um, he, uh, children all around the nation would stop what they were doing at four o'clock each weekday afternoon and glue themselves to the TV um, where they could watch Simon Townsend's Wonderworld, um, which he hosted, being Simon Townsend, co-hosted. <laughs> he co-hosted with a bloodhound... Called Woodrow. Now, those were the days where you could host television shows with bloodhounds and everything was okay, you know, <laughs> everything was acceptable. Um, he very quickly became my favourite uncle. I have a wide variety of uncles, all quite nice chaps, um, but none of them with a TV show except Simon. So, and I quickly also understood the um, power that second degree fame gave you. Um, I was a bit of a dag at school because of the Coke bottle glasses, um, but the popular girls at school soon discovered that, I was, um, that, un- that Simon was my uncle, mostly because I started most of my conversations with, Simon Townsend is my uncle. And um, there, was one, there was one particular girl, Amelia Smythe, who was so pretty and so popular, and she really desperately wanted Simon's autograph, which I could have given her because we saw a lot of Simon in those days. But I understood the power of dangling it just, just beyond her reach. And she'd say every week, you know, did you get it? Did you get the autograph? And I'd say, well, you know... I did see Simon on the weekend, but we were, we were discussing programming ideas. <laughs> ideas about Woodrow's future, you know. And, I mean, at this point, Simon had zero interest in my programming ideas for <laughs> Simon Townsend's Wonderworld. And to be fair, Simon has a lot of nieces and nephews, um, but at the time he was pretty wrapped up in his own fame, and I doubt he remembered my name, you know, from week to week. I was just the uh, slightly chubby niece with the glasses. (laughs) What I didn't understand was the way fame 
recedes. Uh, Woodrow was replaced, darling Woodrow, who everyone loved, was replaced with a golden retriever puppy called Logie in I think what was a blatant attempt to get Logies. Um, people stopped coming to the official Simon Townsend's Wonderworld fan club, officiated by me, um, and Amelia Smythe stopped asking me for his autograph and threatened to bash me because Simon Townsend was my uncle. And eventually the show in 1986 was canned by Channel 10. I've never forgiven them. Um, and I stopped, I stopped talking about Simon Townsend being my uncle because I realised it was not cool. Until I got to university and I did Australian politics and history and um, we studied the, um, Australia's involvement in the Vietnam War and um, also the conscientious objectors movement. And Simon, before he took up co-hosting duties with a bloodhound, was actually a major mover and shaker in the conscientious objectors movement. He um, went to military prison for burning his... Um, draft papers and, you know, part of what I think is a really brave um, generation who actually got us out of that, who actually helped get us out of that war. So um, after a decade of not mentioning it in a tutorial, we're all sitting around talking about, you know, how great the um, 60s were and how important this part of our history was. And I muttered those words, Simon Townsend is my uncle. (laughs) And there was an audible gasp and then silence. And I, you know, basked in the glory of my connection with 1960s radicalism. And eventually someone spoke and said, so how is Woodrow? Sophie Townsend told that story at the Now Hear This Storytelling Slam in Sydney last year. Coming up, what happens when death comes to Goulburn Island and a remarkable story reminding us how very important trees are to our family life. You're on RN with Now Hear This. I'm Melanie Tate. Our next plan now hear this is at the Noosa Long Weekend Festival on Monday the 20th of July. I wonder whether you live nearby and fancy telling a story. Well, it's a brilliant night at the Noosa Arts Theatre and it will be our third festival in a row. I know it seems like a long, long, long way away, but it's going to come very, very quickly. So if you've got a story to the theme The Last Time, please get in touch by emailing this at abc.net. The ABC Radio mobile app has always been very good at now. But now the updated version is also packed full of RN podcasts. So now it's also very good at the later. Listen live to RN programs right now or catch up with your favourite RN shows later. The ABC Radio mobile app. Download it from your smartphone's app market or abc.net.au slash radio. Now we're heading away from mainland Australia with a story from Peter O'Connor. And this story was actually told at last year's Noosa Long Weekend Festival, so hopefully it'll get your creative juices going if you live nearby. 
My wife and I were stationed at Goulburn Island in the Arafura Sea, northwest of Arnhem Land. And one morning, early as it could be, there was a great knock on our door and a message from the hospital saying an old man had died. Now, immediately there was a set a way to deal with this. The first thing was that a telegram had to go to the coroner's office in Darwin and it always was set out in the same format. First of all, it gave the person's name and the age and uh, a medical report Then always finished in the same way. And that was that it's stated, no suspicious circumstances, stop. Request permission to bury, stop. And once you've done that, you were on I your own. I went next to the camp next to me, and by the tradition of the camps and the tribes, the men of that particular tribe, it was their duty to bury their own people. So I went and found the elders, and I got them together in the back of the truck with their spades and their shovels, and we drove up to the cemetery area, and I left them digging the grave at the base of a beautiful gum tree. And it was at that moment that I had time to, to go down and pay my respects to the family and, and express our condolences and to attend to the old man. It was easy for me to find him because all the women of the island were all gathered at the entrance of a long hut. When I look at this building, it's about half the size width and as long. It had a dirt floor, no windows, and one single door at each end. And all the women were gathered there. I walked in, and as my eyes got used to the dimness, I walked forward and, and I could see the old man. He was wrapped up in a traditional way, that he was wrapped and bound up in his white bed sheets like an Egyptian mummy, and he was laid out on his mattress ready for burial. So I walked in and went forward. I knelt down at his side. I put my hand out on his head for a prayer and a benediction. And then suddenly, like a jack-in-the-box, he sat up. (laughs) (laughs) He was trying to get out of his sheets. I called the women, come in again. Help me, help me. Uh, And and I tell you, I was frightened half to death. But that... (laughs) That wasn't the worst part. The worst part was that I'd sent a telegram off to the coroner's department to, to bury this man that was very much alive. So I got in the truck and I drove as fast as I could down back to the office. I put my head through the hopper window in the radio room and I called out to my brother, Love, don't send that message for heaven. Say, don't send that message. He said, Peter, I've never done it before, but I tuned into the wrong channel and I've missed my sked time. I said, look, love, forget it, please forget it. I said, I'll come back and see you. What had really upset me was that a few years previously we had a a bad cyclone and and four of our best fishermen, they were beautiful fellas and they were missing. And so I set out a search party to find them on the mainland and we walked for miles and miles along the beaches and through the mangrove swamps and up and down the rivers. And it was on the third evening of that search that we found the gruesome remains of a a human torso. And by the lights of a ring of campfires on the beach that night, we held an indigenous mortuary ceremony uh, and coupled with a Christian burial service. 
But as you gather, I had no time to request permission to bury. And so two weeks later, a charter plane came in on the island and off stepped a representative of the coroner's office. He was an officious looking fellow. He had a clipboard under his arm (laughs) and... He started from that moment, he put his foot on the island to pound me with questions of what we do, what procedures we have for uh, deceased persons. He followed me, he was behind me, yakking away. I never knew what he was talking about half the time. <laughs> but he followed me and, and all morning, I couldn't get rid of him. I turned around, he's there, talking, talking, questions, questions. And then as I was going through the trade store, we had a long trade store and at the end was a butcher's shop. And, and in the butcher's shop was a large cooler room. And, and he, he, he caught up with me again and, and he, he stopped me. He said, you know that it's an offence to withhold information from the coroner's department, don't you? I said, of course I do. And a bit further, he'll walk in and get down towards the butcher's shop. He said, hey, I've seen your hospital, but where's your morgue? Where do you, where do you keep your, your, your people when they've passed away before you bury them. And I was exasperated. I walked a bit further and I turned around to him. I said, listen, it's, it's unofficial. He said, all right. So I went to the cool room door and I pulled it open and I brushed across a couple of buffalo carcasses. <laughs> and I turned to him and he said, I had him here. <laughs> and I don't know why, but he couldn't get away from that place. He was screaming around. He, he almost ran to the plane and I saw it take off for Darwin. I, I never, ever wanted to see that man again. Never, never. And, uh, and, and so then and I was thinking, what on, all this going through my brain, what have I got to do now? And um, I thought, who started this chaos this morning? It was the people of the hospital. It was a, a relieving sister. It wasn't our, uh, one that was normally there, a resident. And I, I thought, I'll go back. And I so went up to the hospital. I went into the dispensary and I called to the sister. I said, sister, have you been down to the prayer, prepare the old man for burial yet? She said, oh, no, I was just going down. I said, look, I'll go down with you and give you a hand. <laughs> and so I got her in the van truck and we drove off back to the long hut. By this time, half the... Uh, island people all in the, the long hut, all crowded in. I looked in, and there's the old man sitting up and he was yakking away at all four languages of our island. People laughing and cheering. So I stepped back and I said to the sister, Sister, let me introduce you, your patient. <laughs> and I stepped back a bit and I thought, Now, what, what now? What have I forgotten? What's next? The fella's digging the grave. So I got in the truck and drove up to the cemetery as fast as I could. And they were sticking the I said, stop, stop. I said, the old man is not dead, he's alive. And at that, they started to cheer and dance around. They used their handles of their tools there to, as clapsticks. They grabbed my arm and pulled me into a circle, dancing around the grave. We're, all, we're dancing around. And they're yelling and dancing around. And it took me a long time. I broke away finally. And I thought, well, what's going on in this place? All this, all this joyous screams and laughter. I said, does no one, only me, understand the seriousness of this day? We have be requested 
to bury a man that wasn't dead. And I, and I, and I thought, this is, this, I, I can't believe it. So I looked up and it was John Neville, our agriculturalist. He said, Peter, I want you to know that if anything ever happens to me, I want the certainty of a second opinion. <laughs> Peter O'Connor told that story at the Noosa Long Weekend Festival Now Hear This, which we did in partnership with Richard Feidler's Conversations on ABC Local Radio. Our final storyteller today is Jenny Cargill-Strong, and Jenny told this story at the State Library of Queensland in Brisbane. When I was born, my dad planted a mulberry tree. And as I grew, it grew. And by the time I was big enough to climb up into its branches, it was strong enough to take my weight. I had a special branch in my mulberry tree. It was worn smooth and it was straight. And I liked to sit on it. It was worn out from my hands, feet and bum because I liked to sit on it and pretend that my mulberry tree was one in a jungle, an African jungle, a steamy African jungle. And it was full of wild things. And I was one of them. And I would sit hiding behind those heart-shaped leaves and I would smell the humans. But I would sit so still, they didn't even know I was there. <laughs> but one day, a family bought the land next to ours. And we watched as the weeds and the grass was mown flat. And the timber skeleton was built and the golden bricks were laid. And the Andrews family were a friendly family. We soon became very good friends, but there were some big differences between our families because the Andrew family were neat, tidy and particular. And they did not, well, Mr Ed Andrews, I should say, did not appreciate fat, purple, splodgy mulberries landing on his gerbera patch neatly edged in concrete. So one day... When we came home from six weeks at Burley Heads, all sunburnt and relaxed, we came home to discover that someone had committed murder in our backyard. My beautiful mulberry tree wasn't beautiful anymore. It was a stump. In fact, it was a ringbark stump. I wanted to call out, Mr. Ed Andrews, how could you cut down my special tree with my special branch? It wasn't hurting your But we were a polite family. So I just went to my room and I wept. And I wept rivers and lakes. The mulberry tree was dead, but it lived on in my heart. I grew up. It took a long, long, long time. And eventually I met a man to settle down with and have a family. He had a ridiculously large hat. He liked doing poetry. He had a shiny white ute. Actually, it wasn't shiny at all, but it was a white ute. And he liked planting trees. So we bought a house in Mullumbimby, just near the beach, with a yard large enough to plant an edible forest. And we soon set about planting every centimetre of the garden, but reserved one corner for you-know-what. 
because on my son's first birthday, we got the placenta out of the freezer. We dug a hole. We planted it. We planted the mulberry tree on top of it, this little innocent baby mulberry tree on there. And we stuck it in an extremely infertile and clay-bound corner of the yard and watched it. We had a little circle. We blessed it, but that little tree needed a lot more than a blessing. Because I had forgotten that a year ago we had heavily salted that placenta because you have to understand that in Bar and Shire we like to be very close to our children. We co-sleep, we breastfeed for about 15 years and we don't cut the cord after the baby is born because that would be too traumatic. Okay, by the time I had a second child I said, I'll cut it! But the first one, no. I had three days where my son could be at one with his placenta. Which meant you had to heavily salt the placenta so that it didn't stink. You can imagine how my Brisbane nieces felt about being offered a baby to hold that was attached to a placenta. And you can imagine how the baby mulberry tree felt about a salty placenta. All my dreams of my son being at one with this mulberry tree, climbing into it and, and hiding, and, and, and his genetic material would have been in the mulberry tree. They would have been all spiritually connected. It all went to the tip in the ute. <laughs> and there was no space left to plant another tree. What would I do? But luckily, I had a neighbour, a very different neighbour this time. She was a funky dyke who liked art and who liked planting too many trees just like me. So we were really good friends. And she had planted a mulberry tree on her nature strip, even though she didn't like mulberries, for everyone to share. Now, it had sat kind of spindly for a long time, but that year there was a flood in Mullumbimby. It flooded so much there was water up to here in my garage, and that little baby mulberry tree began to grow. And it had its first crop of mulberries that year, and the next year it had more, until the branches were strong enough that all the kids in the neighbourhood would gather in that mulberry tree and sit in the branches like chattering monkeys feasting on monkey... Um, not monkeys. Oh, I'm sorry, that's a different story. On mulberries. <laughs> and I know that you know what colour their lips, hands and feet were. And my children, Tamlin and his little sister Layla, were among them. But I've got my eye on one of the branches that's kind of straight... And I'm waiting for that day when that branch is going to be strong enough to take my 50-year-old weight. And on that day, when the street is quiet and all the kids are gone to school, I'm going to climb up into that branch and I'm going to hide behind the heart-shaped leaves. I'm going to smell humans and I'm going to sit so still, so still, the humans won't even know I'm there. Jenny Cargill-Strong told that story at the State Library of Queensland at the Brisbane Now Hear This Storytelling Slam. That's all we have time for today on Now Hear This. The stories you've heard today were recorded by Martin Peralta, Andre Shabanov, Robert Apollini and Peter McMurray with technical production by Lila Shunar. If you'd like to hear more stories or find out more information about Now Hear This, go to our Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash rnabcnowhearthis. I'm Melanie Tate. Enjoy the rest of your Sunday and I hope you get a story or two out of it. Music.